All right, so this morning we're continuing our series through 1 John, and you say, man, you're kind of like the fat guy going through a barbed wire fence there. It's kind of one point at a time, right? And that's the way we've been going through this, and I hope you've been getting uh, some good out of it. I hope you get a grip on what John was trying to teach them and what John was trying to teach us. As we know, it was uh, specifically written to these believers here, but we know the Word of God is uh, also uh, for us to apply to our life. And John, as you know, has been right on point. Um, from chapter 1 uh, all the way through John, you realize he never wavers. He, he stays right on point. Um, he's rooting out false teachings and belief, uh, belief systems. Um, and he's encouraging, building up believers, and also challenging believers. He's challenging them to live a life that's full of Jesus Christ so that they can have assurance, they can have joy, they can have peace, they can have a victorious life in Jesus Christ. And it's not the goal, to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. Not a half-hearted follower, not a sometimes follower, but a fully devoted follower of Christ. And John says, and this, this is the way you do it, here's how you can have assurance. Here's how you can know that you know that you know. Here's how you know how to live, how, to, how your relationship is with God, and you can have that assurance that gives you this confidence and faith and joy and peace that we all long for in our walk with Christ. And I must say, this past Wednesday night, I was embarrassed as I was teaching. Uh, probably not one of my finest moments. I told the church to turn to uh, Second Philippians. Uh, <laughs> so I hope this morning as I proceed even in that evening to reach... Uh, the scriptures, it was not even in Philippians, it was actually Colossians. So hopefully this morning I want to redeem myself a little bit and uh, turn to First Paul if you would. Just kidding, it was First John, all right? That's just a joke. But anyhow, First John chapter 2, looking at verses 15 and 17. And just for the background, we know John was writing, confronting a specific group of false teachers, the Gnostics, K-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. These false teachers... Uh, had attacked the church, had began to teach us false teachings, and as they began to teach us false teachings, they claimed that they had a secret knowledge, a knowledge that they attained more than the knowledge that the believers there at Christ, in Christ at uh, the church there had attained. And so they would say, we have a higher understanding of God that you cannot attain. And let me tell you, that's a red flag number one. When you hear someone say, they have a higher understanding or an attaining a knowledge of God that you just would not understand, and they're proud about it. Uh, what I've found to be true is the most uh, the people who have the closest walk with God are usually the most humble people. Um, the closer you get to God, the more humble you get because you realize how great God is, and you realize how great God is. And uh, when you get close to God, you have a knowledge of God. It's not something to brag about to say that you're higher than anyone else, or you have a superior knowledge. So as a, as a false teacher, red flag number one, if someone talks about a superior knowledge of God that you cannot attain, that's a, that's, a good, that's a good number one red flag. Number two red flag for a false teacher is that when they attack the nature and the character of Jesus Christ. On Wednesday night, I attempted to talk about the nature of Jesus Christ. Our salvation rests on who Jesus Christ is. And if Jesus Christ is who the Bible says he is, you come to the same conclusion. He's the son of God and the savior of the world. And yet false teachers always attack who Jesus Christ is and his nature. Uh, so red flag number three also is that they believe one thing, but they live a different way. If someone tells you they believe something, but they live another way, um, that should tell you they don't believe what they say they believe. 
If you believe something, you should live that way. And so all these false teachers are doing these things. And then also, uh, red flag number four, when you're hearing people talk about their beliefs, if their major beliefs change many times, what you realize is it takes lies to cover up lies. When you believe the truth, you preach the truth, you believe the truth, you don't have to have lies to cover truth. And these false teachers had lies after lies after lies, and they changed. It amazes me how people can believe mainline religions that has changed just in decades of their beliefs on major things multiple times. Because when you get away from God's word and you get away from the truth of God, lies always have to cover lies. And so this morning, John continues. He's given us some truth here. You know, John just called a timeout. We talked about last week to encourage the believers. Now he's going to challenge the believers. He's going to step on their toes a little bit. He's going to stretch their faith a little bit. And if you're here this morning, I hope it stretches you a little bit. I hope it pulls at your heart some because really when you talk about the maturity level in Christ, it's directly tied to this. And John knew this. John knew this is one of the biggest struggles for them. It's one of the biggest struggles for us today. It's nothing new. It's a believer and his interaction with the world. Uh, The world that we live in, how does it affect our walk with God? How does it affect our assurance in Christ? And so John addresses that and he commands them. So let's read verses 15 through 17. First John chapter 2, 15 through 17. It says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So immediately John comes out and he commands, right? First one. He says, for a believer in Jesus Christ, he's talking to believers, do not love the world, period. He begins with just this right here. And the love word, word love here is in the present imperative. It means don't be loving the world or that you are in the state of loving the world. You need to stop or don't be an active present tense to where you are continually loving the things of this world. Um, And it doesn't take us long to find out that when you come to be a Christian, yes, you do get tempted by the world. And what John is talking about here is not being tempted away by buying a car maybe you shouldn't buy or getting caught up in a moment trying to impress someone you shouldn't be impressing or trying to be a part. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about a constant pursuit of the things of the world to where your life is driven by pursuing the things of the world or the world. Um, It's like you getting on a train instead of just getting back off the train. It's like you get on the train and you take over being the engineer and the driver and you continue that train and you love the world and you love it with full uh, power and strength and the world dictates every part of your life and the world begins to influence every decision that you make. It influences your marriage and how you think about marriage. It influences your family and how you become a parent. It influences your finances and how you spend your money. It inf- influences how you do what you do with things and money and all those things. And even here in the Greek, it says here, not only just a word, but the imperative mood is important. And you say, well, it's all Greek to me. It's all Greek to me too, but it's good to study the Greek language because the nuances of the word really means a lot. And like I said, the imperative mood here means that God clearly shows us that we are to be in this world, but we are not to be of this world. 
that the world should have nothing to offer a believer in a constant pursuit of the world rather than a constant pursuit in a relationship with God. So if you think, here's what John says. You are not, of the, you are not to love the world, period. And, and, and he says, again, if you love this world in a present tense and you have a lifestyle of this world, the love of the Father is not in him. So he says, if you're pursuing that consistently, constantly in your life, then the love of the Father cannot be in you. So he's saying if you set your life up to where when you get saved and you come to know Jesus Christ and there's nothing that changes, you still pursue the same desires, you still pursue the things of the world, then nothing really happened to you. So what he's saying here is for us, when we become truly a Christian, our nature should change. And as a Christian, we are not to pursue the world. It is not our passions. It is not our desire any longer. And you cannot have the love of God and the love of the world. Jesus told his disciples and the Pharisees, he said, you either love God or mammon. You can't love both, which was basically money and the world. He's saying, you can't love both. You got to make a decision. You can't serve two masters. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot with God. He, and we could temporarily do it. We'll talk about it later. But he's talking about a constant pursuit of life of the worldly way. The spirit of God in a believer causes us to be pulled away from the desires of the world and enables us to live in God. In the world, but not of the world. Now, you know, I, everybody loves a good boat. I remember one time I had a, a boat, <clears throat> two happiest days of my life when I bought it, and then when I sold it. All right, that was the two happiest days having a boat. Some people say boat stands for break out another thousand, and that's usually what happens every season. Some of you have boats are probably broke out a thousand to get your boat back in the water or get your boat running again. But I remember one time my dad got to a point where he let me take it out by myself. So I put it in the water and thought I was so cool cruising around. Then I noticed the back of it started getting lower and lower and lower. I was thinking to myself, why in the world is the back of my boat getting lower and lower? And then all of a sudden it wouldn't get up on the plane and wouldn't go. And I looked in the bottom of the boat and it was covered with water. You know, you flip up the little thing there and the whole bottom of the boat was full of water. It's like, oh my gosh. It's full of water. It's going to sink. So I get it back to the dock. I go get my truck. I pull it out of the water. I'm like, what in the world? Something's wrong with my boat. Get it pulled up there and look. Forgot to put the plug in it. <laughs> if you don't put your plug in your boat, the water fills, your boat fills full of water, and all of a sudden you're in trouble. Well, this is what he's talking about here with the believer. It's okay for the water to be on the outside of the boat. That's what we are in this world. It's okay for the world to be here, and we are in this world, but when the water gets inside of the boat, that's when trouble begins. That's when the trouble begins, when we, when we allow the things of the world or the world to get in our boat. John's saying, when that's a constant thing in your life, that's a problem. That's a problem because if you are saved, you're never going to live victoriously. You're never going to pursue the things of the world and be satisfied in your soul. It can't happen. God has put in every heart eternity and the desire and pursuit of God. And when you choose to try to fill that with anything else, it will leave you empty. Solomon tried it. Solomon said that life is vanity of vanities. It is empty upon emptiness. You can have everything in the world and still be empty. And, and those who seek the things of this world and continue to seek the things of this world, it will leave you empty and dry. But for a believer... The command is to live in this world, but not be of this world. Do not love the world. John says that, number one. Number two, which is just as significant, I already talked about a little bit. 
We're not to love the world. We're also not to love the things of this world. So the world has trinkets. You know, when my kids are smaller, Courtney would probably still go for this, but they'd love to go to the fair. You go to the fair, and they got all these games that you play, and you spend hundreds of dollars to win like a $5 little teddy bear or something, you know? It's, they're little trinkets. And without fail, I would spend hundreds of dollars to try to win these games. I'd always get them, though, with them trying to guess my weight. I always got that. I always got them on that one. <clears throat> they always loved goldfish, too. Goldfish, bring them home. They'd die within a day or two, you know, quickly. But you'd spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars thinking they're going to be happy, and they're so happy till they get in the car, and it falls apart, and the stuffing falls out, and all this stuff. And next thing you know, by the time they get home, guess what? They're completely disgusted with it. They couldn't stand it. So you spend all this money to get just a little trinket of the fair when you knew, and you already know, and people know, it's not worth it. And what John is saying here, he's saying, look, the world has trinkets. Don't love the world, and don't love the trinkets of the world. The trinkets of the world are to lure you in, to bring you away from God. And as we go through this process, you look at these three, they're all tied together. It's like Satan is the mastermind, and these are his tools. And he uses these tools, and he uses them on you. He uses them on the believers here in John. He uses them on me. He used them with Adam and Eve. He's used them all the way through the time to, to lure people away from God to the things of the world and to him. And you say, well, why hasn't he changed them? Because they work. They work. I mean, he knows they work. He, he hasn't changed them because he knows they work and the trinkets that he could put out in front of us, he can get us to fall for. And John say, says, not only commands us not to love the world, don't love these trinkets. Here's the trinkets of the world that will lead you in to this uh, pursuit away from God. So he says, for all that's in the world, all the trinkets of the world, here, break them down three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life or the boastful pride of life. Those things are not from God, they are from the world. So, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So, as we take them, first of all, the lust of the flesh. Uh, the word lust here is not just a normal word for desire. It's to take it to a level that's un unhealthy or to take it to a level that's not meant for. Uh, it's an inordinate desire or appetite for something that you should not be pursuing, or things that you can pursue, but pursue them to a level that causes them to no longer be good in your life. So epi means concentrated, super concentrated, lust in your life, or desire for something that should not be. Uh, thumos Desire, passion, same word there uh, as part of being a lust. So this is a desire that's concentrated and focused on this lust of the flesh. In us, we have our flesh. It never dies. The desire to live ungodly, the desire pursuits of the flesh of this world, it is in us. And when we get saved, we get a brand new uh, spirit, but we don't get a new flesh. The flesh doesn't come new until we die or until we're resurrected with Christ and we get a new body and a new flesh. But the, the desires of our heart is still there. And so that lust just doesn't go away. It's something we go to battle with. It's something we go to war with. It's something that Paul says spiritually and when he was writing his writings, he says, I beat my flesh. I, I beat my flesh into submission. It's something I got to fight with every single time because as the lust of the flesh comes, it's something that desires the things that are not of God. And so John comes, he says, the lust of the flesh is from the world. And when you have it, it's seeking things in an ungodly way. 
So the lust of the flesh is fulfilled in ungodly ways of pursuing things of the world over God in your life. What's the number one thing you should pursue in your relationship with God? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, period. Listen, when we pursue anything more than we pursue the kingdom of God in our life, it's lust of the flesh. And listen, you can put anything else you want to in that desire there for the flesh. You have things of the flesh you desire more than I desire. We can't pick what we're predisposed to, to, to be sinful towards or to be in the flesh for. And we're all really good about pointing out other people's problems and other people's flesh, right? But we all have them, and we all know what they are. And, and Satan takes that, and he uses it to get us to do something beyond the way God designed it. Take money, for example. Money is from God. It's a good thing to have money, right? But when you begin to pursue money at a point where you love money more than you love God... Or you love money more than you love your family. Or you love money more than you love your marriage. Or you love money more than you love serving God. Then there's a problem. You pursued that to a level that should not be pursued. Uh, Same with lust. Or a lust of the flesh or sex. If you pursue sex beyond the limits of marriage or what God has created for. When you go into fornication and adultery. All those things. All those passions. He's saying that's pursued to a point that you shouldn't be pursuing those things. Because... You're pursuing them more than you're pursuing God, period. So lust of the flesh. Then he ties that together, lust of the eyes. That's the second thing he says. Lust of the flesh, then lust of the eyes. And you think about it here, word here, eyes is what we get our physical word for in our uh, English language. Uh, as you know, your eyes are a physical perception of something that you see. And as you see it, you put it in your heart, you eternalize it, and then you form your view about what you see. But we know that the majority of what we have or what we see, especially in our world, is influenced by what we see. What we watch on TV, what we see on the social media, what we watch through people's lives and things like that, our eye gate, our pursuing of our eye or the eye, the lust of the eyes. And so it is automatically part of our lust of the eyes to look upon things or do things that are worldly. And once it gets to worldly for our eyes, it gets to our soul, gets into our flesh, and then we pursue those things that are not. So much so, Job in the Bible, you remember he said he made a covenant with his eyes. That your eyes are so important that they're worth making a covenant with that you shouldn't look upon something. You shouldn't look at something and desire those things because it's going into your heart and your eyes are very, very important. That's why, like I said, it's important what you see. It's important what you consume. It's important what you see because what you feed is what's going to be in your heart. You don't think that's true? Then look at the way they do advertising in the world today. If you decide to buy something, you just Google it. Say you Google a new car or say you Google something about some product. For the next five days on your phone and on your TV and everywhere else, you're going to see commercials about that thing. Sometimes they even listen to what you say. And and I swear even words that you might look up on Amazon or other things. And and they get it. You know why they get it? Because they start showing you all these things in your eyes. and You start seeing, wow. Look how cool I would be in that car, you know? Or look how cool that would be. Look how that would change my life. And all of a sudden you begin to see it and it goes into your heart and activates your flesh. Uh, Dr. Lindsay from First Baptist used to say, your mind is, is God's original computer. And he says, what you see with your eyes is the, is the, is the, in, is, is the, is the uh, in, end gate. Or he used to say, garbage in equals garbage out. He said, if you fill your eyes full of garbage, guess what's going to come out of your heart? Garbage. 
And he says, it sounds fine when you're young, but he says, garbage leaves behind scars. Garbage leaves behind trash. Garbage leaves behind stuff that you don't want in your life. And he said, that's why it's important to guard your eye gate. Let me just give you a word of caution, too, for kids, for parents, for your children. Make sure and be careful what they see. What they see, what they hear, what they're watching, what they're not watching. Friends that maybe influence their life as well. Because it's important to watch the eyes because the devil knows the eyes is a key tool in his weapon. So you got the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and then the pride of life. The flesh is fed by the eyes, but the driving factor becomes the pride of life. Listen, it it becomes the problem that where he says here the boastful pride of life in another translation. He says pride is going beyond just uh, thinking about the things God has given you. It becomes a mindset. It becomes a mindset that you want to impress or you want to please the people of the world more than you want to please God. It's to the point that, you know, you've heard of peer pressure. People talk about peer pressure when you're a teenager. Well, peer pressure goes far beyond teenager years, all right? And it goes to a point that when you get the pride of life, it begins to become a mindset that you want to please people and things of the world more than you want to please God. And you know, the funny part is a lot of times we spend our whole life trying to please people or impress people that we don't even like, and they don't even like you, right? And you think, man, if I just get a bigger house or a nicer car, or I do this, or I pursue that in my life, people will like me more. People will be impressed by me. People will see the way that I am. And when you begin to pursue those things to a level that's ungodly, to where that sets your standard, to where you would rather please God, I mean, please man rather than God, then there's a problem. And you see how he uses all these things together. He, he takes them together and he, the devil will use them as his tools. And he uses the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And he works them together. John says, this is not a from God. This is not of God. These are the world and the things of the world. And if you see in verse 14, he mentions the evil one as well. You know who that is? That's the devil. I've already talked about that. And you think about as he talks about the devil and these three things mentioned together, you see he's constantly trying to use those things to pull us away with, through temptation and through temptation of sin. And all of us have it. There's no temptation which has taken you, which is not common to man. Every single one of us. And, and, you know, the devil's out there and he's using these things to pull us away from God. He's using us, pulls into the world. I liken it to like a good fisherman, you know, when you go out fishing and it's this time of the year where, you know, time when bass get on their bed and you can see them, you know. And you take a, you take a, a lure and you put it across the pond, you know, put it across their bed one time and they don't go for it. Do you just leave? No, of course not, right? You begin to use it again. You begin to wiggle it a different way. You bring it across a different way. You might even take the worm off, change the color, or change whatever lure it is because you're desiring to catch that fish. You, you start using all sorts of different things, and you don't give up on it. And all of a sudden, sure enough, that fish will strike at it. You found the right combo, the right key, and next thing you know, boom, you got it. That's the way the devil does. He uses the right combo. Listen, he wants to destroy your marriage. He, he's going to use people to come into your life and, and, the, and, the, and the people and the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And they're going to say, hey, what, what about your marriage? What about your wife? What about your husband? And he's going to plant seeds and he's going to plant doubt. And he's going to try to destroy your marriage because he doesn't want you to have a godly marriage. 
He doesn't, he doesn't want you praising God. He doesn't want you to have God in his things. Same with your kids. Same with your finances. Same with the things of the world. And he begins, and for us as Christians, it's important for us to remember and to look, even evaluate this morning. What am I watching? If you could just put your browser history up here on the screen this morning, what would it be like? Uh, what would your movies look like this week? What would your purchases at some place or certain places would be? If you could just look at it and say, what am I looking at? What am I spending my time with? What am I putting my heart into? It would give us a good example of why we may not feel like we're fulfilled or why we're not living a victorious Christian life. That's what John is saying. You might not have assurance of your faith in Christ because you're living like the world. And it's amazing to me how many people come to God and yet they still want to live like the world. You come out of the world because of sin and darkness, and that should make you not want to live in sin and darkness anymore. But sometimes as Christians, we get pulled back into that, or if we're not truly converted, we never turn from that. And you continue down that path, and it leads, leads you to the last point, what John gives us here. It leads us to the conclusion that he gives us. He says, why are we not supposed to love the world? Well, he tells us. In 2.17, he says, and the world is passing away. And also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. You know why? Because this world's passing away. It's temporary. It's something that pulls you away from God to keep you from being on track with God. It's only momentary. It's only temporary. Listen, when we tell our kids there's nothing good in the world, the world's not fun, or this is not fun, that's a lie. Listen, there's fun things in the world. There's, there's things you can do in the world that make you feel good. But we know it's just momentary. It's momentary because the lust of it and the newness passes away. That's why when people say they use drugs, they use drugs, they get the first high. Guess what they spend the next 20 years doing? Trying to feel like the first time they got high. That's what they do. And yet they never feel it because why? The lust of that, the passion of that passes away. And yet, when we get stuck in that process, what John is saying is, listen, these, this world is passing away and the lust of it. You, it may feel good for a year or two years, but all of a sudden it begins to pull away in your life. And not only you, but as you get older, those things begin to pull away in your life. And John is telling them, listen, these things are passing away. Don't be pushed down the, sea, down the river of this world like a floating ship, but be, be like a rock. Be sure in who you are. Be sure in Christ. Don't, don't go any way that this world takes you because it's passing away. It's not going to be here forever. And as the world passes away, and we'll talk about this next week because he goes right into it. He talks about the end times and he talks about the Antichrist. <clears throat> I was watching a scientific show just this past week and the person who was uh, narrating it said, it's, it's almost like the world has been spun into motion and it's slowly beginning to wind down. It is winding down. And the world's going to end one day. And the things of the world are going to pass away. Like everything you pursue, if you think about it, it's, it's a good thing to ask ourselves, whatever you're pursuing right now in 100 years, is it really going to matter? If you're pursuing the things of the world from 100 years from now, is it really going to matter? Listen, I can promise you, uh, it, it, it's not going to matter in your job. If you died today, Tomorrow, they would have somebody else already going to be hired for your job. It, it, and money, it's always going to be someone that's richer than you. Someone that has something better than you. Matter of fact, when I was coming up, I used to have friends. Sometimes the friends would be like that person that always had a friend who had something nicer than yours. You ever had a friend like that? 
I got to get a new car or I get something that was new to me. I was like, this is so cool. And they said, yeah, that's cool. But my friend has one of these. I'm like, wait a minute. Do you have it? If you don't, then shut up. I got it, right? This, this is nice. This is mine, all right? But, but think about it. You get a car, somebody pulls up with a nicer car. You get the latest and greatest version of something. Next thing you know, another one comes out that's better than one you have. And it's never, it's never fulfilling because it's constantly changing and passing away. And John's saying to live for that, it's temporary. You'll always be left empty and dry. But he says, for those who live for God, look what he says, they, they will abide forever. Those who abide forever in eternity. Listen, that's why you don't live for the things of the world. You live for the God of this world. You live for eternal things. Uh, this, too, uh, this life will too pass, but only what you've done for Christ will last. Think about that. When you leave a legacy, it doesn't matter how much money you leave or how much possessions you leave. What are you going to leave for the Lord? What are you going to leave to impact your kids and your grandkids and your families? And when you go to that day, you're not going to be wondering, maybe I should have worked another day. Or maybe I should have made a, a little more money. Uh, one preacher always says, well, I've never seen uh, U-Haul uh, following a, uh, a hearse. You don't take it with you. You leave it here. And all of a sudden, we, we, we don't do those things, but yet we should pursue the things of God. And who does that? The one who does that, the, the will of God, he abides forever. The things of God is for eternity. The things of God are for eternal purposes. And that's why every minute you spend praying, guess what? It's not futile. That's something that bolsters your faith. Every minute you spend in God's word, that's worth it. Listen, a lot of times we, we go to work, we can have our fun, we can watch TV, we can watch football games for four hours, but man, when it comes to prayer, two minutes, maybe four. Man, we could go all these places and do all these things when it comes to church, maybe once a month. When it, when it comes to discipling our kids, we could teach them how to hit a ball, we could teach them how to run, we could teach them all the sports things, we could teach them how to play instruments, we could teach them how to do all these things, but when it comes to the things of God, not that much time for Listen, that's what he's saying here. The pursuing the things of the world, we know they're passing away. As a Christian, put it in your mind. Get it as a mindset that you're going to pursue the things of God because that's going to abide forever. You want a godly marriage? Uh, put, put godly things in it. Pursue, pursue your marriage and godly things. If you want godly children, pour godly things into them. Pour the things of eternity in them because those will abide forever. And all the other is just little trinkets of the world. And for us to set our direction on the things of the world, it's like John says, it's foolish because it's passing away. And you're passing away. I learn that every single week that I get, week that I get up. I'm celebrating a birthday this month. Every year that I get older, I realize, wow, I'm getting old. It's back now when my back goes out more than I do. You know what I mean? I was thinking about it the other day. I was down there on the floor. I was like, anything else I can do down here before I get up? Because... <laughs> You don't think about those things until you start getting older. Your eyes are going bad. Your ears are going bad. Get the Chester drawers degree, disease. You know what that is? Your chest starts hitting your drawers. You know what I mean? That stuff happens to you. Things start looking. You look like a melting candle. You know what I mean? You're like, wow, what happened? All these things are perishing. Your body perishes. The flesh perishes. The things of the world perishes. Do the will of God. It abides forever. And that's why it's so important for us to ask ourselves these things. And let me read to you one more time as John commands these believers. 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but that is of the world. And the, and the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together this morning.